this is what I was trying to do with Bill Burgess by Wells. It's so obvious that we're in this world that's just completely off the rails and it's it's unsustainable and now it's the borders just create the structure for which to keep it going. What needs to happen is is a whole new conversation. And it really like if you think of borders, like why are people migrating in the first place? Why are people displaced in the first place? Those are the right questions. Welcome to the Honduras Now podcast. This podcast shares human rights stories from Honduras and connects them with global issues and North American policy. I'm your host, Karen Spring, a longtime human rights activist that has lived in Honduras for over a decade. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I have invited Todd Miller on the podcast to talk about his brand new book, Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders. Todd has written and researched on border issues for 12 years, the last 10 years as an independent journalist and writer. Todd has written three other books, including Empire of Borders, The Expansion of the U.S. Border Around the World, and Storming the Wall, Climate Change, Migration, and Homeland Security. So without further ado, this is Todd Miller. Todd, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me, Karen. So you just put out a new book called Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders. So to jump into some of the questions I have for you today, in this new book you have, you talk about a concept that you refer to as wall sickness. What exactly is wall sickness? Well, the definition wall sickness, it comes from Germany. And it came from the phenomenon of people living near the Berlin Wall. So what they detected were that people were having feelings of narrowness of confinement of a extra anxiety from living so close to a wall that magnitude and so then they came up with this terminology called wall sickness and then according to the lore of that time wall sickness was then alleviated when the Berlin Wall fell but little did they know that was just the beginning and uh so if you go if you have in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell there was 15 border walls. And then if you go to today, there's approximately 70, two thirds of those constructed in the post 9-11 era. And so uh, what was called wall sickness then, and I hate to say it like this because it might sound a little cliche, but it's been described this way. It is a wall pandemic. You know, this is actually described by an author named Marcelo Cintio. And he, he described this actually before the, the COVID pandemic. But the idea that the walls are spreading like mad, like wildfire, and they're going around the world. And in the and Bill Bridges Not Walls, I bring that up, seeing a border patrol agent who's, who looks like the manifestations of wall sickness are in his very gestures, right? He's, there's a family on both sides of the wall, like maybe eight or 10 people, and they're separated on both sides of the wall. And the and you could see it, you know, the wall, like, why aren't you respecting the wall, the wall, you know, the idea that this wall 
is more important than any relationship that you can have with each other. So I think that the definition that would be affect one individual is now expanded to this, like, maybe it's more of a fervor in, in other, in other contexts. And if you look, if you think about the Trump years, maybe even a religious like fervor of wall and the wall as a, as a, some sort of solution to a, to a problem. So that's, I mean, that's it. And, in kind of a nutshell, but it does, I think it, it's, it's a term that does kind of, it embodies one of the states of the world we're in right now, where we've never had this many walls in the world. There's never been so many walls and I'm talking physical barriers, you know, and it, the, the walls can come in many other forms as well, but there, there haven't been so many impediments to people, the freedom of movement of people than there are now. So years ago, I, Scott, my first taste of wall sickness, I guess, a glimpse of to what it could be when I went to an event that was put on by the School of the Americas Watch right at the US-Mexico border. And I think I actually saw you there from a distance with William on your shoulders <laughs> from afar. But it was my first ever experience being around the US-Mexico border. I mean, I'm Canadian and so I don't, I've never like crossed that border. I my the border that I'm used to is the border between Canada and the United States, which is very, very different from the border with US and Mexico. And so it was my first time actually seeing this long border wall. It was my first time getting a sense of the tension that exists in the air when you have this, and then maybe that's because I was new to the wall. I'd never seen it before. But it was the first sort of glimpse I got into, you know, what you refer to as, you know, wall sickness. There are Canadians that listen to this podcast and there's people that have never actually been to a, a border wall before. Can you describe for somebody that has never been to the Mexico-US border what it's like? And then also, what is the situation right now at the border? And has the border changed at all, the dynamic at the border with the change of administrations, like now that the Biden administration is in power? I didn't realize you were there. <laughs> yeah, so we probably did. We probably knew each other from afar at the at the U.S.-Mexico border a few years ago, and I did have William. Yeah, um, who is my five-year-old son. The so if you're going to go to the to the border right now, it's like you described, Karen. It's it's just it's a twenty-foot wall right now. I don't know if at the time you were there if this was the case, but it's now there's coiling razor wire. Um, I don't think it was actually during the SOA watch in Quainthrows, but it, there's a coiling um, razor wire that's been put up since Trump's been in office or actually in the last couple of years. And so actually, if you don't mind, I, I want to take a little bit of a longer look at the border. So if, if when you come to the U.S.-Mexico border and you think about even the transition of power right now from Trump to Biden and really the media narratives around it, right? Oh, you know, especially the one like, oh, Trump is, is the root of all problems of the border, but now Biden's in power and everything's going to be fine, which is actually probably, or I know it's, it's, it's probably not a correct analysis. And you, and, and so when you go to the border, you just, you literally see right before your eyes, decades of, of what has been a massive fortification. And perhaps the, the most in anywhere in the world, there's probably a couple competitors out there. For example, if I like to start in the mid-1990s, and I'll do this quick, but in the mid-1990s, you have the Clinton administration starting up what's called the prevention through deterrence strategy 
and they have a $1.5 billion immigration and border budget. And they start these operations like gatekeeper, hold the line, safeguard, among others. And that just brought in tons of money. That's when you see like in Nogales where the SOA watch of the Quinto was, that's where you saw the first wall of landing mass, um, a 15 foot wall built and the, and the, and the, um, the uh, chain link fence was extracted. And then border patrol agents were hired, technologies were put up and all designed to force people around into like dangerous places like the desert. And so that, that strategy that started there in the 1990s was then amplified considerably post 9-11. In the US, of course, 9-11 was huge, created the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security created CBP and ICE. And then it put a counter-terror as its priority mission, which is just like opening up the floodgates of money. And so much money poured into it. And so if you look, for example, in the Bush years, you just see this massive construction on the border, like 650 miles of walls and barriers, um, all kinds of technologies, what is known, what they called at the time, what you still could call the virtual wall, which is using surveillance towers that interact with each other and ground sweeping radar. And that's when drones were deployed for the first time and all these implanted motion sensors going into command and control center. Like war, they call them war rooms, right? That gives you an idea of how, how the borderlands are, are envisioned by, by the it's designers, right? And it all comes together based on the prevention through deterrence. So all this kind of loads up in the cities no way people can cross through the cities. It expands further and further. So that just makes the makes the migrant routes go go further and further into like these desolate, dangerous areas. And then the direct result, of course, is that nobody can carry enough water, nobody can carry enough food, nobody can carry enough anything. People's feet will blister up so much that they can no longer fit their feet in their shoes. And those stories are commonplace, like every day, every single day, there's stories like that. And the stories of death and near death. And there's been at least 8,000 remains uh, of people found in the desert since then, let alone like there's the number is most likely much, much higher. The humanitarian aid organization, No More Death, estimates probably three to 10 times more higher than, than, than 8,000. Like right now, you hear a lot of border crisis, border crisis, border border crisis, and it's in a way it's like it's a it's ridiculous how it's narr narrated because it's like almost as if the border itself can be in in a crisis, and it's like no, the border it can't be in a in a crisis. It's designed to create a crisis, a perpetual crisis, a crisis, an everyday, all the time crisis, and that's exactly how, that's exactly how you see the militarization concentrated in these areas like in Nogales, and then where people go is far from the eye, far from the media cameras. No one, no one um, knows what's going on because it's way deep in the desert. And so the, the tragedies are often not reported. Sometimes they are, but oftentimes they're not. And so when you shift from a, a Trump administration to a Biden administration, just to finish up, when Trump came into office, all this buildup had had come to like, I think the CBP ICE budgets combined were $20 billion. So from Clinton, again, 1.5 billion up to 20 billion. And so he had a massive amount of, of resources to work with to do all the things he did. Now, of course, Trump pushed the cruelty to the, to the furthest reaches that he could possibly do it, right? And, but he had all the arsenal 
at his disposal to do that. And that's exactly what he did. And so as Biden takes office, he says $25 billion. So it's $5 billion more than Trump, right? As the 2021 budget, I think it is. I'm referring to CBP and ICE combined. And w- one thing, so he comes in, he says, we're going to change everything. But, you know, we have executive orders. We're going to reverse the Trumpian policies on one hand. So that really, at least rhetorically, and somewhat, and, and, and there are some things that he's doing that remain in Mexico, the idea that people are staying on the Mexican side. There's some things that he's doing that, that, that are creating a least a valve of release or something. I don't know how to put it. But the, the, the main thing I want to I wanna say, it's still not enough as far as even the Trump policies. But what Biden is not addressing at all is this huge arc of fortification that's been bipartisan in the United States that both parties have done. The start of the Clinton administration, Obama administration carried it on when he was vice president. Of course, as the as the activists called him the deporter in chief, Obama, nearly three million people deported under his presidency and Biden's presidency. That was rarely mentioned by. I mean, he's he mentions it when he's directly questioned about it, but that's it. And so those bigger issues are not addressed, which makes me think, okay, there's a bit of a cosmetic thing going on, and perhaps some really key policy shifts as far as Trump, because Trump just took it to beyond the pale. But it seems like the overall, like people being forced into the desert, the border patrol, the militarization of the border, even the razor wire that's on the wall that Trump put up, five rows of it that you see everywhere you go, is not being removed by Biden. So it's all being, it's all there. It's all the same thing, the same effects with some policy changes. Yeah, that's sort of how we see it here in Honduras, at least. Although there is, there seems to be more people that are hopeful and that are headed to the border now, I think. I'm in Honduras, which is just continuing the migration that's, that's been going on for, for decades and several years. So two years ago, I sat in a meeting here in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, inside the U.S. Embassy. And we were meeting with staff inside the U.S. Embassy here under, that were you know, under the Trump administration, the, the State Department. And I was with American citizens that came down to investigate the root causes of migration with an organization called Cross Border Network that's based out of Kansas City. And someone in our delegation asked the officials at the U.S. Embassy why are people migrating? Why are people leaving Honduras? And the person that responded said, well, it's because of climate change. And that was their response to us. And I was really perplexed by that response because one, Trump denied that climate, that climate change was happening and he just you know, refused to acknowledge it as a, a major problem. And it's interesting because it wasn't until I picked up your Storming the Wall book that I was able to understand the response that I heard in the embassy. And as I was reading Storming the Wall, Climate Change, Migration, and Homeland Security is the name of the book. You give this framework that allowed me to understand why that response was what it was. And you talk about how the Department of Defense, the U.S. government, regardless of what Trump says or not, recognize climate change as this major issue. But instead of actually addressing it, they're actually spending all this money to fortify borders and to militarize and to ensure that people that are refugees of, of the climate crisis don't actually come to the United States or other, any other country that's trying to protect itself, quote unquote, um, from these refugees or climate refugees. And so this response by this embassy person 
was really interesting because he was basically fueling that whole idea is that we need to spend more money on borders to fortify borders. And so this sort of leads into my question. There's a quote that you have at the end of your book, your most recent book, Build Bridges, Not Walls. You wrote, quote, catastrophic climate change alone is an argument for a world without borders, unquote. Can you explain this quote? And obviously you, you know, and you can talk about all your books because I think all your books sort of touch on this issue itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that's really interesting to hear that the embassy um, person answered it that straight, straightforwardly. Yeah. So when you, well, one, I mean, like that, just, just like that insight that, that you get from the embassy visit of the borders being a quote unquote solution to climate change. I mean, how, how on earth is that a solution unless unless like the quote unquote solution to climate change is that some people are protected and some people are not, you know, or, or in, in um, like some, like when you look at uh, a whole border, like when you look at a, a border system, for example, like climate change is, is a definite result of business as usual capitalism that is, has, inundated the atmosphere with poisonous greenhouse gas emissions that are now affecting the world. And the historic perpetrators of that, of course, the biggest one is the United States, like 27% since 1850. And understanding a world of massive displacement is being being predicted as is happening in Honduras and Guatemala and Salvador and and everywhere around the world, including within the, the borders of the United States. And elsewhere, to to like keep a, a kind of business as usual kind of status quo, you know, world where things can function, right? Like, can keep doing what we do as we've always done, and where the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. All of that stuff, you know. And now the 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 kind of divide between the environmentally protected and the environmentally exposed. The border border becomes the solution when you think of it that way and and to me like when you think of a you know climate change alone being an argument for a world without borders it's like of course that's not i mean anyone with any sort of bit of logic knows that that's not a solution at all that's just allowing a situation to keep going and even exacerbate you know keeping uh, perpetuating it and perpetuating it in the interest of the global elite, really, and, and, and keeping things as they are. And to look at climate change, things can't stay as they are. So when you look, when you look at the last 25 years, you, like you've had 25, 26 years of United Nations summits around climate change. And that involves bringing nation states into conversation. And of course, one of the biggest accomplishments was the 2015 Paris Agreement. While quite an accomplishment, we're non-binding. So we know that as like the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Agreement, but non-binding means what, you know? So, but, but one of the biggest results, you go to 2019, and I'm not going to count 2020 because the pandemic actually made the emissions go down, but 2019, the, there was more emissions than any other time or in the history of that we know about on planet Earth. So how could you have 25 years of nation states coming together to talk about climate change and a solution and that and there's more emissions than ever before and then then coming out of the 
out of the IPCC is the International Panel on Climate Change, the them saying that by 2030, it has greenhouse gas emissions have to decrease by 50%. And then by 2050, by 90%. I mean, you're talking about things that nation states are showing by their very interests, by like, especially the asymmetrical relationships, like the United States historic emitter, 27%, 700 times more carbon emissions from the U.S than Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador combined since 1900. So definitely a perpetrator and guilty of, of, and yet business as usual work still continues to pump, you know, these emissions into the atmosphere is happening now and our time is getting shorter. And so what is going on? And then, then you have this whole thing where, as I looked at in Storming the Wall, like digging into, oh, borders, like our, are the, a solution, like if you look at mitigation versus border, like the budgets for border enforcement in the US and around the world is significantly higher than the efforts have been put towards resolving climate change. And then finally, an issue like climate change is a global issue, like dividing people into separate places is not, especially, you know, the world, as the world is divided now with different power, hegemonic powers, is, is absolutely not the way this is going to get solved. It's going to get solved with people cross-border collaborations, solidarities of, of between, between, peop between peoples, really, and the very things that borders imp impede. Like, I always think about it here. Like, why, is it e why can't it be easier for us to organize with our friends in Sonora, in Mexico, but we can't because the, the border is there. Like, you can't, you can't just cross. You have to go 70 miles cross and then go another 70 miles just to get to a place that's five seconds away. And then you can't organize to the same people because you're in different countries. You know, you're, it's all organized in a way that just arms and disorganizes and divides people and divides people who would otherwise be organizing together. And, and to me, like this, this, this this problem, and you can look at a number of other ones like like massive inequality in the world, or like the pandemic right now, right? And and just know like this this interconnectedness is this solidarity and this kind of coming together of people are what's going to to bring the solutions. And the solutions are going to be maybe different in different localities. There's overall global solutions, but but people have to be able to come together and be able to respond to this. And and secondly. You have the way that it's now. It's so set in place that there's going to be this massive displacement. Like the estimates range from 150 million to a billion in 2050. Like more than ever before on planet, you know, on the planet. So it's it seems like okay, let's think about this. You know, it's time, and that's going to take the border stuff. That is that is going to cause, and it is causing. It has caused. And it will continue to cause, and that's the status quo, immense amounts of suffering, really brutalizing people. And now it's time to think, okay, this is going to be happening in the status quo business as usual. We have to think about this and think of a better way to, to organize the world. So in Honduras, the barrier to entry to the United States like, isn't just the wall. Um, it's actually the entire journey 
from the checkpoints, like even here in the cities in Tampere Rasul in Northern Honduras, the military and the police are putting up kind of checkpoints where migrants have to cross checkpoints in their own countries as caravans in order to get to the Guatemalan border. And so it's this entire journey that is the barrier to entry into the United States through Central America, but also the danger that migrants face passing through Mexico. So how has the United States expanded its borders into Mexico and also into Central America? That is, I would say, like I I was stressing the prevention through deterrence strategy earlier. Since 9-11, the extension of the border, and you can see this throughout CBP literature, they talk about it constantly, go to the conventions, they're constantly talking about the extending of the border that has become or side by side with prevention to deterrence, or you could say the export of prevention to deterrence because you end up, people end up circumventing the sort of checkpoints, right? Is fundamental US border strategy now. And Alan Burson, under the Clinton administration, he was the border czar. He calls it a paradigm shift, a massive paradigm shift to say that the shift to externalize the US border He's also the, the person who said in 2012, he said that the U.S. southern border is no longer the border with Mexico. It's the border between Chiapas and Guatemala. And really, I mean, he was ridiculed for that in 2012. Like, how could you say that about a sovereign country? But he was actually telling the truth. Like, he was actually telling the truth. He was talking about this massive resource, like this incredible pressure that the United States is putting on Mexico in this particular case. The Merida Initiative, which is, of course, was in 2008, like counter-narcotic initiative where the U.S. was sending Mexico resources, which was revamped to include the borders in the 2012. So 21st century border was this project of Mexico, so it would bolster its borders. And, and, and so that's what I think Burson was meant, was referring to, how the U.S. was actively participating by sending resources and doing trainings and and a bunch of other things in building up and fortifying Mexico's border. And then of course that wasn't the end of it. And it but it in fact it wasn't even the beginning of it, right? And, um you're talking about in Honduras and Guatemala. For some of the research I did, I, I did I did go to both Guatemala and Honduras and meet with different task forces that were being created with the U.S. embassy money in both cases, which were effectively border patrols. And that's where I learned about the Salvador Angel operation in Honduras in, uh, I believe it was 2014, exactly what you're referring to. They were, when I was interviewing one of the people from the Maya Torpi, Maya Torpi from the, Hondur- the Honduran side, he, he talked about this operation Save an Angel, which which is basically an internal checkpoint in Honduras that was targeting, I believe, single pe- people that were single, even mothers. He might have even said it, mothers with a child, and they would stop them from leaving the country. So these inter- internalized checkpoints, and this is the same, you know, agency that's funded and you know trained and all that by the United States, and that replicates itself in. In Guatemala, the Torti is what it's called in Guatemala. They, for some reason, they leave out the Maya part, but they call themselves the Torti. And so I, so I went there and they just showed me like their armored Jeeps that came from the United States. When I went to CBP headquarters in Washington, D.C. and asked them about some of the stuff, one of the officials said, oh, those 
those Jeeps are a donation. <laughs> and then this other guy looked at him and, and said, did you just say donation? And, and, and he responded, yes, but he said it kind of sheepishly. And then he said, they're not a donation. And he goes, we expect a return on our investment. And that's pretty much, I think that pretty much says, says it all, right? Yeah, and speaking about return on investment, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about, I drive by this Honduran police station in this urban area frequently to go to the grocery store. And outside of the police station, there's often this van that has border patrol right written on the side of it. And in English, right? And so it's just like these donations, quote unquote, that aren't very much donations that are present here. And when I see it, I'm just like, that is just so bizarre. Like it's just parked on the side of the road, like nothing. Here we have border patrol, not necessarily, you know, present, but just all of their tools and their quote unquote donations they're giving to the Honduran police. So I hear you on that and I see it with just with that van parked on the side of the road here. Um, Can you take a picture of that van? Yeah, I will. Next next time I see it, I will take a picture of it. So if anything, the trend over the last few decades has been the erection of more walls, the expansion of the wall beyond the U.S.-Mexico border, and also the strengthening of the prison logic. You talk about this at the end of your Build Bridges, Not Walls book. How does the export of the U.S. model of mass incarceration or imprisonment to places like Honduras I mean, Honduras has three U.S. style maximum security prisons. My partner was in a prison for, you know, a year and a half. How does the construction of these prisons play into the reproduction of prison and border logic at a global scale? Yeah, I mean, thinking about the export of borders, the export of prisons, and this is what I've I've looked at, and especially like immigration detention and and that sense. That's what I've looked at more than anything else. But the kind of incarceration apparatus of it goes right along with it. It's just hand in hand. What like the the more like forceful the border logic, and the more that it becomes, you have an enforcement apparatus. The more you need prisons or detention or the, as they call it detention center. One time, I talked to an ICE agent and he and I used the word prison <laughs> and he um he he corrected me quite quickly and told me they're not prisons they're detention centers even though they're very much prisons right they're this razor wire you can't get into them you can't get out I mean you can't get out of them it's it's a it's a prison but they as far as immigration is concerned the whole idea of detention that's what that's the terminology anyhow so so it goes hand in hand in in that way for sure and and so when people like in the sense of the border sense like if you're crossing a border and you're criminalized then you will be you know put into you're doing you're doing a criminal act and then obviously you're you're the net result the result obvious result is you go to prison and and so um and and yeah so there's there's that export and then then the whole idea, like what I think of as borders, and I've heard like the border, the border area, you know, even described as a sort of, you're going through a panopticon, which is like the Michel Foucault, the French philosophers, the panopticon, where there's so much surveillance around you that, and that's, it was used in a prison setting where you don't, know if you're being watched or you're not being watched, but you always assume that you are. So it has a sort of psychological 
um, effect on you. And I guess that could that could um, link back into the wall sickness stuff. And to me, also like there's with with the border surveillance system that we have, um, there's a panopticonical that's probably a made up word on my part effect of uh, of crossing the border where you're almost like you're in a in a in a sort of prison. There's so much surveillance around you. You don't know if you're being watched or not. You know if you get caught, you're going to jail. That's for sure. And um, and um, so in that sense, you're just this this kind of exportation of this of a mentality of and and geared towards certain people that they're they're going to be criminalized and put in prison for in this case crossing a border or you know the export of prisons as is the case with your partner i would imagine is also probably has to do with people dissenting and trying to change things within their own countries In your book, you mentioned Ruth Wilson Gilmore um, in, and in an interview with New York Times Magazine, Ruth Wilson Gilmore said, quote, instead of asking whether anyone should be locked up or go free, why don't we think about why we solve problems by repeating the kind of behavior that brought us the problem in the first place, unquote. You talk a lot about this in your book in different, in different manners and in different conversations that you have. And I think one of the fundamental questions that prison abolition proposes is, how do we change the conditions under which violence prevailed in the first place? And so with that in mind, when you call for border abolition or, or building bridges and not walls, what do we need to do to create the conditions in the world where borders need not exist? Yeah, that's the question. <laughs> but that's exactly, I think, like going to Ruth Wilson Gilmore and just garner like just infusing yourself with the wisdom that she brings the idea that abolition like you say abolition is pre a presence it's, it's presence and I think she's quoted or I'm going to paraphrase something like like abolition of prisons is one percent destroying the prison 99 percent creating a whole new world where prisons are do not no there's no need for prisons to exist and then what she goes further into saying is she'll describe neoliberal capitalism as she has a term organized abandonment and by organized abandonment you look at the just kind of you know you can you can look at it in the united states which i think she was mainly focused on or you can look at like just you know the u the u.s you just look at the united states relationship with latin america for for centuries <laughs> right um the 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 idea you know like what's gone on in central america and then you know the economic stratification part of it the international monetary fund and the world bank and the economic restructuring all that kind of gets it kind of gets shoved off to the to the side but sometimes but it's like there's a fundamental structure in place that keeps people that that keeps the rich rich and the poor poor and that's what keeps like abandoning the organized abandonment like in mexico when nafta was about to be passed and then like the guaranteed subsidies that small farmers would get for their corn like that's removed the guaranteed price that farmers would get for, to sell their corn that's removed all of a sudden they're putting in a like competition with 
Archer Daniel Midland, right? And there's no way. So that's like the organized abandonment. And so what this whole world is creating this, the, the border as a solution, just like what we're discussing with climate change, the border becomes a solution of climate change. And this is what I was trying to do with Bill Bridges, my wells, is the conversation needs to be had, you know, this, it's so obvious that, that we're in this, this world that's just completely off, off the rails and it's, it's unsustainable. And now it's the borders just create this, this structure for which to keep it going. And that's what needs to happen is, is a whole new conversation. And then really like, if you think of borders, like why are people migrating in the first place? Why are people displaced in the first place? Those are the right questions. And if you ask them in good faith, not if you're the embassy person that you refer to, like you're asking them in good faith and like, oh, 700 times more greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, that means we're a little responsible for this. Oh, these economic, the structural adjustment programs have caused this. Okay, let's take this away. You know, oh, um, organized abandonment. Let's let's stop doing this. Let's do something different from organized. It's really not that difficult, you know. We had the the biggest, like this one of the things about the border is that in, at least in the US, at least the way the rhetoric goes is you're always told that the problem is on the other side, right? On the other side of the wall, somebody's gonna come and get you or they're gonna come take this away. And that whole narrative just refocuses, it redirects your mind from even looking at where the emphasis needs to be made for the well-being of all people. like. Why is, why am I thinking of somebody on the other side of the wall from Tegucigalpa, you know, instead of like thinking that like people, kids drinking contaminated water in Flint, Michigan is a, is a security issue or, or like if you get bit by a cat and you get a, some sort of shot that it'll cost you like $50,000 and that's going to put you, make you bankrupt. And that's a security issue. Or your house is foreclosed and you no longer have a roof over your head. To me, that seems like a big security issue. And that's happening all the time. And so, like, it's just a totally misguided way of thinking. And, and if you think of money, money, misplacement of money to where it's really needed. And um, I think that really falls into what Ruth Wilson Gilmore says about presence, about, you know, creating another world where, where all this stuff, prisons, borders, don't need to exist. I mean, it's it would be like totally illogical for them to exist in the first. But first, we have to have like conversations and and get off the fact that like oh the border sacro thing, you can't say a thing about a negative thing about it or challenge its existence. And really, I think the conversation needs to really go into these new frontiers and new directions. And and I think really that the, there's a lot of terrain to really begin to imagine. A new world. Todd, where can people find your work and also buy your new book and also the books that you have published previously? So the, the new book, you can buy it right from City Lights Publishers, go to City Lights webpage and buy it there. And you can also buy two of my previous books, Storming the Wall, you mentioned, and Border Patrol Nation, which is my very first book. And Empire of Borders, and Empire of Borders is where I discuss the expansion of the U.S. border you can buy at Versa, Versa Books. And so um, it's always better to go straight to the publisher. Of course, there's other outlets you can buy them on too. And toddmillerwriter.com 
So just come visit my, I try to keep that fairly updated. Um, sometimes I forget. Thank you so much for joining me today for this like amazing discussion and for continuing, you know, you've been doing this work for 12 years. It's so important. Your book has definitely helped me rethink and understand some of the things that I see here in Honduras. So thank you so much for joining me today and best of luck with the promoting your book. Thank you, Karen. I appreciate being here. It was an honor. So there you have it. That was Todd Miller talking about his most recent book, Build Bridges, Not Walls. And that is the episode for today. As always, check out our show notes at HondurasNow.org. And thank you so much for listening. Until next time, hasta pronto. Generosa será nuestra suerte si morimos pensando en tu amor, defendiendo tu santa bandera y en tus pliegues gloriosos cubiertos. Serán muchos Honduras tus muertos, pero todos caerán con honor. Tu bandera es un lampo de cielo. Por un bloque de nieve cruzado.